Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Lewis Williams. And I'm Calvin Ostrom. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today we're going to be joined by Levin Goover, a PhD student at University College London. We'll be talking about Levin's segue from a career in law to academic philosophy and his research on action and intention in the philosophy of law. If after listening, you'd like to find out more about Levin's work, you can find his website at www.levingoover.com or you can get in touch at levin.goover at gmail.com. That's Goover, G-U-E-V-E-R. Levin Goover, welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. Thank you so much for having me. So I gather that the PhD you're currently undertaking, though very philosophical in the content that you're working on, is actually housed in the law faculty, as were your previous degrees. So I'd be interested to hear how that came about and where the philosophy is coming in. Thank you. So ever since I was small, I mean, I do not myself have a recollection of this memory because I must have been quite small, but my parents always told me that I was very inclined towards justice. So even on the playground, I would be like a little playground police. And if people were taking the slide twice while others were just taking it once, I'd be like, hey, let others slide more frequently. My entire life, I thought that the degree that one must pursue to pursue justice is the law. I mean, that's what the law is about. It's about justice. And so I, did, I didn't think much about it when I finished high school. I just began a degree in law. But I quickly realized that law, or at least it seems to me, is not about justice. Uh, the professors will also be quick to tell you. It's a very idealistic view of the law, and it's not how it is done in practice. Most of the time, not even in theory. Upon realizing that, I tried to structure my studies so that I would be able to move towards philosophy. Ultimately, my master's degree, while formerly in the law department, was I mean, consisted almost exclusively of philosophy modules. Mm -hmm. And now I am doing a PhD that is in the law department, but I am supervised by a legal philosopher and uh, a, a philosopher proper, one might say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and just related to your what you were saying about the relationship between philosophy and law, obviously a lot of philosophers with an interest in, in law end up going down that path. There's like a pretty common career path. And do you have some previous work experience working as a lawyer? Is that right or no? I did an internship both at a law firm and at a court. Mm -hmm. They were quite short stints. I think the law firm was two months long and the court was uh, a month long. So I do have that previous experience. I, I wouldn't call it, you know, working as a lawyer proper. Sure, right. But uh, nevertheless, would you see yourself going back to something like that? Or are you very much interested in academia? I cannot see myself going back uh, at all. I mean, there's so many reasons for that. One of them is, and this is also a reason why I uh, ultimately had to come to the UK um, was the hierarchical structures in these um, fields. Mm -hmm. I mean, in a law firm, you are expected to come in wearing the very least a dress shirt, but usually also a suit. And I'm not really the type of person to do that. It, I just don't feel comfortable in it. It's not who I am. It's very hierarchical um, and not hierarchy based on merit, as one might you know, presume is at least halfway justifiable, but just hierarchy based on nothing. And I did not find the work, at least the work that I was undertaking as an intern, which is of course not law work proper, but a caricature of it, but I did not find it stimulating. 
Yeah, so we had a guest um, coming from the same university as you come on the podcast recently, Alice H- Hubbard, um, and she was talking about her work experience in the civil service. And I think maybe she said something that maybe might agree with, with your experiences, which is that you know she was interested in these kind of policy questions, but I think she was interested in, if I can uh, rephrase her and hopefully she'll agree with how I'm putting this, she was interested in the um, why, perhaps, um, rather than the how and the normative underpinnings of what she was doing, which she maybe didn't have so much freedom to explore while working in the civil service. Does that maybe get a, a distinction between how law works in practice versus how it works in the um, philosophy seminar room? Are you kind of uh, maybe more interested in those normative underpinnings rather than the, um, the practice of law as it were? I think that is absolutely right. I've listened to the, the episode with Alice and uh, I found much of what she said about the civil service to be reflected in my experience in the in the legal industry. It's very constraining. It does not give you much room to breathe and it's not open for change in a in a big way. I think it's absolutely correct that uh, law as done in, in the philosophy seminar, so to speak, is quite the opposite of that because it concerns itself with the normative questions. Whereas if you were, or if one were to do law proper uh, in, in the law faculty working on doctrinal matters, which are just matters of the positive law, the law as it exists, it could be a bit more cut and dry. But with normative questions, as you two know better than me, I mean, things are always exciting. There's no ground that can be agreed on, and it's certainly never dry. Well, and we're hoping to get to those normative questions in just a few minutes. But before that, like Alice, you decided to apply for a PhD in philosophy. And how did the admissions process work out for you? Did you have to make any big decisions? The the only thing that I was certain about before and during my application process was that I wanted to come to the UK. The legal tradition or the legal philosophical tradition in the UK is quite different from that on the continent in Germany or Switzerland. You have a, a much closer connection between law and philosophy departments. You might even find people with philosophy PhDs uh, as law professors this is not something uh, I have ever encountered in Switzerland or in Germany. There you would need a law PhD for a law professorship, a philosophy PhD for a philosophy professorship. Mm -hmm. And so I applied quite broadly to PhD programs in the UK, and I was very fortunate to get accepted to a handful of them. Then I had to make a choice, and that choice was based on a few factors. Naturally, the question of funding is very important. I mean, you have to sustain yourself, you have to survive, you have to live. The question of academic excellence was very important, but many of the universities that I was fortunate to be accepted to meet that criteria. And then what might have been most important to me personally was the relationship I had with my prospective supervisors. And ultimately, I found UCL to be the the place that I got along best with my supervisors, though at, at other universities, um, I was also very, very fond of the people I would have worked with. And of course, London, I, I the big city drew me in. <laughs> and of course, you're working with a fantastic set of supervisors at UCL. But I'm curious to know, I guess, how you went about um, making that decision as to whether you would have a better working relationship with the supervisors at UCL 
or at any of the other universities you'd apply to when, I mean, I guess a lot of PhD students wouldn't have that working relationship already in place. You know, they wouldn't maybe know quite what it's like to work with these, uh, with these professors. So had you worked with them before? Or if not, what kind of information did you go off in um, choosing to work with those supervisors at UCL rather than the supervisors you may have worked with elsewhere? I had visited London alone for the first time in 2019. I had been there previously with my family, but this was to visit UCL for a workshop that was hosted by my philosophy supervisor, John Hyman. And there, I've just been freshly out of my bachelor. This was December 2019. And that's when I met him for the first time. And he was very kind to me and obviously brilliant. And since then, I've, I've kind of been enamored with at least the philosophy side of UCL. With respect to um, supervisors in general, though, the way that I judge whether there's a good fit between me and my supervisor is something I infer from, for example, how they reply to my email, whether they, what their tone of writing is. I'm someone who's more of an informal kind of guy. So if they also have an informal tone, I like that. Um, I try to schedule a Zoom meeting with um, every prospective supervisor. And if we ultimately do undertake that Zoom meeting, which they all did, then that is, that is a good sign there. You can meet them a bit more intimately. You get to see their mannerisms, um, what interests them, whether they're passionate about the work that you intend to do, how many PhD students they have, which they are currently supervising, whether they have capacity for you, and so forth. So these are um, probably the factors that played into my decision. Yeah, I think that'll be really helpful advice for prospective grad students, for sure. Just uh, navigating that you know space where they're trying to decide where they should end up going to, right? Because it's a big commitment. And also, obviously, it's important that you have a good relationship with your supervisor who you're going to be meeting with for three or four years, right? So absolutely, some very good points right there. You're working in this sort of like normative questions to do with the law. And so, you know, you engage with the law department and the philosophy department. I guess you're like interdisciplinary would be probably a good way to put it. But like philosophy and law departments are different in interesting ways, I'm sure. And I was wondering if you could speak to those those differences. And maybe just like, I guess, what happens when you give uh, talks at like law conferences and philosophy conferences, and I guess how that plays out as a, you know, you being a PhD student in the, in the law department, but with a philosophical interest. So I've been to at least three types of conferences. I've presented work in philosophy conferences, at law conferences, but also at psychology conferences. And I think you're absolutely right in saying that um, each department or academic environment has its own distinct features. One thing that one might find at law conferences is that it is much more formal and in a way hierarchical than philosophy conferences, especially on the continent. Things are a bit different in the UK and in the US, but um, on continental Europe, if you're a senior professor, you might be you know, surrounded by, I mean, one can call them underlings. Um, <laughs> and that is not something you find so much here. I mean, certainly if you're a, a famous philosopher, you, people will want to talk to you. But it's not only in deference, but people actually want to engage with your ideas and be critical of your work. I'm still in the infancy of my PhD, so I just started six months ago, so I won't be able to give an in-depth overview of how the departments differ since I just I haven't experienced that much yet. One difference, uh, one thing that I noticed is that, for instance, the concept of a reading group 
is not really known in the law department. Mm -hmm. You do not meet weekly to talk about landmark papers or just interesting papers. Whereas in the philosophy department, um, I believe that is something that is frequently done, even if it's just bi-weekly. So um, there's a reading group organized by the Roots of Responsibility project of my supervisor, John Hyman. And we meet weekly to talk about papers there. But there is no equivalent of that in the law department. There are work in progress groups, but they're they're for all PhD students. They're not topically centered, so to speak. And they often, I have to admit, do not match with my interests. Uh, they're very doctrinal. Um, at UCL, I am, as far as I know, I mean, from my year, certainly the only student working in criminal law. Mm -hmm. But I think from all years, even, I mean, there's at most a handful of students working in criminal law. Things are very business heavy as it was also in Zurich, where I came from, a financial capital, so to speak. So you'll find a lot of doctrinal work in finance and business law, but less work in normative foundations of criminal law, as it might interest me. So I, I believe um, when it comes to departmental fit, I feel more comfortable in a philosophy environment. Well, thank you for speaking to those differences between the departments. And I, I was just going to gesture at one uh, explanation, maybe why there's no law reading groups, which is that law journal articles are super long, uh, <laughs> like 90, 90 pages long on average. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, you anticipated a thing I was going to talk about right now, which is your doctoral research on law and action quite broadly. Um, and I wanted to start just by asking what's the philosophical significance of intention in the philosophy of law. And I take it the philosophy of criminal law, which is what you're interested in. There are different goals of the criminal law, different goals that the criminal law might undertake. And one of them certainly is the ascription of culpability. We want to punish a defendant or an agent for something that they did. Or rather, before we even think about punishment, we want to ascribe culpability. Punishment might come in a second step and might be built on different considerations. But when it comes to culpability, uh, we can probably construe a type of hierarchy in the sense of what is it that an agent can do that makes her doing more culpable vis-a-vis -vis similar actions that can be performed. And in the law, um, this is culpability is usually cashed out in the mens rea, the guilty mind, the subjective mental states of the offender. And there we might think that someone who negligently commits a crime, say a traffic offense, deserves some blame, but not that much. Then there's recklessly committing an offense when you're aware that there's a certain type of risk, but you nevertheless take that risk. More blame. Now imagine the case where you knowingly commit an offense. You know for certain that your action is going to bring about an adverse illegal consequence, and you nevertheless do it. Well, even more blame. But the pinnacle of criminal culpability, and I would reason even moral culpability, is when you perform an action, a harm, intentionally. When it is your purpose to do something that is immoral, or when you aim at doing something immoral. And uh, naturally, these will bring with them, with this will come the most stark consequences in the criminal law. I mean, in America, you might still have the death penalty for murder which might require you to commit, to kill someone intentionally or in a, in a especially heinous fashion. Okay, so I guess the relevance of intention in criminal law then, as you've put it, is its bearing on culpability. 
from the way you've put it, this might sound very straightforward. The greater the intention, the greater the culpability. But I'm guessing it's not quite that straightforward when it comes to the philosophy of law. I think you're absolutely right. It is not that straightforward. At least one of the reasons for that is that intention is doing a lot of heavy lifting in the law. One aspect of intention might be that it allows us to derive the culpability of an agent. Another um, aspect of intention might be that it allows us to figure out in the first place what it is the agent did. Consider the following example. There's uh, two people out in the forest, and one of them has a dog, a bit of a wild dog. And then um, they get into a confrontation, they quarrel a bit, they have a small argument, and then the person holding the dog says, come one step closer and you will get hurt. Now, what is it that this person did? What is the action that was performed? What is the description under which this person acted? Well, it depends on his or her intention. If she meant by come one step closer and you'll get hurt, that if you come one step closer, I will make this dog hurt you, which if that were her intention, then what she did was she threatened the other person. But if her intention was to say, look, I have a wild dog that I'm not able to control well. If you come one step closer, you might get hurt. Then the action might be best described as a warning. And so besides describing culpability, intention might also have this uh, action-fixing role. And there's many other roles intention can take in the law. And in fact, I would argue that there is no unified concept of intention in the law. There's many things that the law needs intention to do. For example, ascribe culpability, denote the correct action description, fix a criminal attempt, determine whether there has been an intention towards a circumstantial element, and so forth. All of these notions might require a different concept of intention. Well, that's a really good overview. And I guess it really matters you know, what intentions turn out to be, right? This is one of these areas where, like philosophers, if uh, we <laughs> develop the wrong account of intention, that can have really important downstream consequences for how we punish offenders and all the things you were just suggesting right there. Can you give us a flavor of, like, the different conceptions of intention? Because it's one of those, I guess it's one of those concepts that, like, it makes sense to approach from, like, in this, like, flank way, right, where we're talking about it already tying it to culpability. But if we approach it head on, what kinds of different views of intentions are out there? Are intentions, like, different from desires or related in various ways? Yeah, what would you say to that? So I think you're absolutely right. There is a ton of different conceptions of intention. Philosophers argue over this, lawyer or legal scholars quarrel over this, and there's even a difference between intention as construed in Germany or Switzerland and the UK and the US. There's a lot of axes along which one can divide this question. If we approach it from a philosophical angle, which is um, also what I would hope to do in my doctoral work, then um, there's this classical debate between, I'll, I'll use um, Elizabeth Anscombe and Donald Davidson as figureheads for this debate, the question whether an intentional action is an intentional action in virtue of its antecedent cause or a certain form or teleological explanation that it takes. So those that subscribe to the Davidsonian camp would say that 
An intentional action is an intentional action in virtue of the way it was caused. In Davidson's early view, as he espoused it in his 1963 paper, he explained intentions in terms of their antecedent causes. So he would construe an intentional action as a belief-desire pair that became a type of rationalizing reason and caused the intentional action. And so an intentional action was an action that was caused in this special way by this belief-desire pair. The Enscombian camp, on the other hand, explained intention not in terms of its antecedent causes and certain types of beliefs and desires that came together to cause the intentional action, but rather in terms of the form that an intentional action takes. It allows us to explain human behavior in a certain way. In, a, in an Aristotelian terms, we might call this, it, it, it gives a rationalizing e explanation by making reference to the final cause of the action, to the purpose of the action. These actions, these intentional actions would then take a certain form, which would then qualify them as being intentional. So the criminal law, for instance, in Germany and Switzerland, subscribes to a very different model of intention. It does not concern itself so much with the metaphysical question of what an intention is or how an intention is properly constituted, but rather with the mental state that the agent would find themselves in and the relation of that to culpability. And so, for example, the German criminal law considers a state called the dolus eventualis as a form of intention, as a form of Vorsatz, intention, which is not to be taken as intention in the traditional sense at all. This is a state where you suspect that a certain outcome might come about and you're okay with it happening. Mm. And this is construed as intention in German criminal law. Why? Because someone who is aware of the risk of a certain outcome coming out and reconciles himself with its coming out and nevertheless acts is, according to German criminal law, culpable enough to be punished under st statutes of intention. Mm. And so intention in the law is often proxied via culpability, whereas the philosophical questions concern themselves with you know, the metaphysics of what it means for an action to be an intentional action, whether it's a mental state or some such. Mm -hmm. that, I mean, that's really interesting. I guess it seems like on the kind of account you were giving of intention, at least in, in Germany and in Switzerland, it seems like you really wouldn't want to, I mean, to me, that sounds more like merely foreseeing than intending, right? So it seems like if I'm going to commit a crime and then hopefully have some debate about whether it was intentional, I'd rather do it in the UK than in Germany. Would you say that's right? <laughs> in a way, I think that's absolutely right. So the UK category, the mens rea category of recklessness is taken to span dolus eventualis, and uh, a certain German form of negligence. Mm. So in the UK, you have negligence, but it's usually taken to be unconscious negligence. So it's a negligence where you're not even aware of your shortcoming. But in Germany, you have two types of negligence categories. And one of them is where you're actually aware that something's up, but you're just not reacting to it in the right way, or you're not taking it seriously enough. So in the UK, you'd you wouldn't fall under the header of intention, but recklessness, but you'd still get punished for it. Levin Guver, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Philosopher's Nest. You can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com. And if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode, feel free to reach out to us at thephilosophersnest at gmail.com.